Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Romans 14, verses 13 through 23. We are in the chapter in Romans, Romans 14, where Paul talks about doubtful things. Things that are not clearly immoral, for such, such as, should I eat pork or not? Should I drink wine or not? That kind of thing. The Ariafra, the doubtful things. In the first 12 verses... Paul took up the topic by saying to the brothers at Rome, both weak brothers and strong brothers, don't condemn each other. If you're a strong brother, think it's okay to eat pork. Don't condemn the person who thinks it's wrong to eat pork. And if you're a weak brother and thinks it's wrong to eat pork, don't you condemn your brother who is eating pork. Now we, in this section, verses 13 through 23, Paul is going to continue with the same theme. And this time it's, instead of saying don't pass judgment on one another, He's going to say, don't make your weak brother stumble. So we're going to assume that most of his exhortations in this last part of chapter 14 are aimed at strong Christians who see nothing wrong with eating pork, etc. And and he's telling the strong Christians, don't make the weak Christians who think there is something wrong with eating pork, don't violate their conscience by eating pork in front of them. That's sort of a down and dirty summary of the whole thing. Now, there is some discussion here as we go through that maybe Paul is also pointing some exhortations at the weak brother who won't not to criticize the strong brother who thinks it's okay to eat pork. We'll mention that as we go through. It's sort of ambiguous. But the overall point is it doesn't matter whether you're a weak brother or a strong brother on a particular point. Don't criticize one another. So we start with verse 13 in Romans 14. Therefore, let us no longer criticize one another. Instead, never, instead decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in your brother's way. Now, let's put this in modern day terms. These are examples from my friend Steve Ackerson who mentions the things that modern Christians criticize one another about. For example, a teetotaler Baptist condemns a Presbyterian because he drinks like a fish. How about a lot of Pentecostals condemning charismatic women for marrying wake up, calling them painted women. How about strict reform people who judge as Sabbath breakers those who play games, eat out, take a Sunday stroll, or buy a newspaper on Sunday? These strict Sabbath keepers say there are ten commandments, not nine. How about those who don't go to movies condemn those who do go to a movie as a virtual heathen, even if the movie's clean or relatively clean? Them that don't dance judge them that do. What if it's a square dance? I remember I was at my seminary. Back in 1973 to 1975, and it was started by a strict evangelical denomination, and they had a rule against square dancing. You couldn't even square dance. Well, if that that means some weak Christian in that denomination that started that seminary, if they thought it was a sin to square dance, then my golly, I shouldn't square dance. How I was tempted to go out and start a square dance because I thought that kind of thing was stupid. But no. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to let the weak brother alone. Don't criticize him. Continue with some modern day examples. Some feel it is dishonoring to God to sing any praise song, set to rock music, or with a jazzy beat. This is the musical equivalent to meat sacrificed to idols. You say, well, the origin of a lot of that meat, a lot of that music, it came from devil rock. And listen, I used to be a rock music nut. I was into it long before my contemporaries were. And I will tell you, some of it is beautiful and some of it is from Satan himself, like Black Sabbath, one of whose members got saved, by the way. I love thinking about that. But at any rate, you can get into a lot of arguments over whether this music is 
destructive to one's spiritual health or whether it's not. If somebody is offended by music that doesn't come out of a Baptist hymnal, well, then don't sing music that comes out of a Baptist hymnal. Don't criticize him. Some people are scandalized if a church uses any other version of the Bible than the King James Version, KGV-only people. Now, I ran in, I had a good friend one time who was flirting with this, and I was sort of joking, but I said, look, I'm not going to let anybody read, uh, I'm not going to use a Bible that has the word piss in it. So, and he was a little bit taken aback, but I would not do that if, it were, if he wasn't a good friend of mine. If I'd have caused him to stumble, I'd say, fine, use the KGV. I'm not going to say anything to you. Some people can get very legalistic over the exact hair length for men and women or skirt lengths for women. The point is, is you need to be modest and you shouldn't lust. That's the general rule, but then we're going to get a little bit more picky about that and decide, well, that's got to be mid-calf or we're going to cause somebody to lust. You can't decide that. That's impossible. And some who do not believe in head coverings for women can be extremely critical of those who do wear head coverings. If somebody interprets that verse, and I believe it's interpreted wrongly, I don't. I believe hair is given for a cover, but if I'm wrong about that, it's a hard passage. And if somebody disagrees with me with on that and they're... Women want to wear head coverings. Well, let them wear head coverings. What difference does it make? So you see that the, the Paul's situation back in Rome has modern-day applications also. Now, when Paul says instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in your brother's way, this indicates, as the NIV Study Bible points out, that the words that immediately follow to the end of chapter 14 are addressed to strong Christians. Now, John Gill says the earlier part, verses 1 through 12, was probably addressed to strong Christians too, but that's debatable. There were exhortations in there, I believe, that were also exhorted to weak Christians. Weak Christians should not criticize strong Christians. If you think it's all right to eat pork, and a weak brother comes up to you and says, hey, you're wrong to eat pork, I have every right to say, no, you shouldn't slander me. I can eat pork as long as it's not in front of you, but don't you start criticizing me for eating pork in my private house. But we're going to assume from now on this is strong Christians looking out for the weak Christians. Don't put a stumbling block in your brother's way, in the weak Christian's way. Something that might cause a weak brother to fall into sin, for example, eating pork. The stumbling block, is the Greek word is scandalon, which is the basis for our English word scandal. So in other words, don't scandalize your weak brother and eat pork in front of him. Or drink wine in front of him if he's a teetotaler. The trap, it, orig, the word scandalon originally referred to the trigger of a trap, the bait stick. And so, to make a stronger metaphor here, your weak brother is walking along and he sees the bait and he grabs the bait and wham! The trap slams shut on his foot or, or his hand and he's stuck. Don't do that. You don't do that to the brother you love. Here's some other doubtful things. Another scripture concerning doubtful things in the weak brother, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 7. About eating food offered to idols, then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. In fact, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food offered to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, what Paul is saying is if you eat meat offered to an idol, there's no such thing as an idol, so there's nothing wrong with eating the meat because there's no such thing as an idol. It wasn't really offered to a god. It was offered to a piece of wood or stone. 
that's not an idol. It doesn't exist. There's only one God. That idol is non-existent. So eat the meat. Don't worry about it. But Paul says, however, some people have been so used to offering eating meat offered up to idols that when they see you eating meat offered to idols, it strikes their conscience. So don't defile your weak brother's conscience by eating that meat. And again, that's in a situation where everybody knows what's going on. Now, if I'm in the privacy of my house and I'm eating meat offered to idol and the weak brother's not around, I eat meat offered to idols. No big deal. Romans 14, 14. Paul says this, I know and am persuaded by the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. In other words, it's a subjective standard. Again, we're talking about doubtful things, not moral or immoral things. Notice that when Paul says he's persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself, that's a huge swing of opinion from when he was a Pharisee, a traditional Pharisee, where he thought everything was unclean, according to the Jewish traditional rabbinic laws, the traditions of men. Now let's see what the scriptures say about all these things that the Jews considered to be unclean. And again, remember Paul is writing to a lot of Jews in Rome, and so the doubtful things that he's referring to are most probably things that the Jews had considered unclean and the Gentiles considered clean. Here's Matthew 15, 10 through 11. Summoning the crowd, he, Jesus, told them, Listen and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. It's not pork or shrimp. Matthew 15, 16 through 20. And even you still lacking in, un- are you even, are even you still lacking in understanding, he asked? Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a man, for from the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. Gosh, it sounds like a talking about Americans. These are the things that defile a man, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So again, the heart things matters much more than what goes into your stomach. Mark seven fourteen through twenty three. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you would understand nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. Let me skip down to verse 19, Mark 7. For it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. As a result, he made all foods clean. First Timothy 4.4, 4, For everything created by God is good. Nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And of course, this is not talking about adultery and, that, and robbery and that kind of thing. It means created things like food. I mean, you know, even I can be tested on that. When I lived in China, I watched people eat scorpions or talk about eating scorpions in Guangzhou in the south. Monkey brains. Oh, my gosh, monkey brains. There was a brother whose English name was Philip Law. I'll never forget. I was saying, you live in the south down here in China where you're reputed to eat everything that moves. So we started talking about the things he ate. When he got to rats, I said, wait a minute, Philip, you've never eaten a rat. He says, no, it tastes great. It tastes just like chicken. I said, well, aren't you worried about disease when you eat a rat? He says, oh, no, you boil them, you cook them fine, you cook them well, and it kills all the disease. And and you eat the rat meat, and it tastes good, and I I almost lost it. (laughs) When it comes to eating rats, I am in the category of a weak brother. Philip was a strong brother, so I did not condemn him for eating the rat, even though I thought he was out of his mind. Titus 1.15, to the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are, uh, are defiled. And that's what happens when people get caught up into laws, legalism, what you should do and what you should not do. But pretty soon, man-made legal systems start condemning things that are perfectly okay and made by God. Acts 10, 10 through 15. Like wine, for example. There's nothing wrong with wine, but if you drink too much of it, 
you've abused it. But in it, per se, in itself, there's nothing wrong with wine. God made those grapes. Acts 10, 10 through 15, Then he, Peter, became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state. This is Peter at Joppa before the situation with Cornelius in Caesarea. Peter saw heaven opened in an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lured by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, Peter kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything common and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, a voice said to him, What God has made clean, you must not call common or unclean. So, here's a trick question. This is from Steve Ackerson. Trick question, is there any such thing as unclean food? And you are probably tempted to say, no, there's no such thing as unclean food because of those scriptures I just read you. However, the correct answer is, it depends. It depends on the partaker's attitude. If he thinks it's unclean, it's unclean to him, subjectively. We go to verse 15, Romans 14. For if your brother is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy that one Christ died for by what you eat. Now, you know, if Jesus went up on the cross for a weak Christian and suffered the horrible pains of crucifixion, surely you can not eat in front of him, not eat pork or eat idle meat in front of him. Come on, surely you can do that. Why do you want to destroy him? Because his conscience would be so defiled. He would be quote-unquote destroyed now. Some people say they get into a doctrinal thing here and they say, do not destroy that one Christ died before by what you eat. An Arminian might say, well, see there, you've destroyed the weak brother and therefore he loses his salvation as he stumbles off into apostasy. Th folks, this verse has nothing to do with losing your salvation. Do not destroy the one. It means don't just wreck his conscience. Don't defile his consciousness. Don't wreck him. Don't ruin his life here on this earth. It says nothing about him sending him to hell by eating meat in front of him. Let me read you some quotes here. Here's one from Adam Clark, the Arminian. From this verse we learn that a man for whom Christ died may perish or have his soul destroyed and destroyed with such a destruction as implies perdition. Well, it doesn't imply perdition to me. Mr. Clark, whatever happened to that verse about nothing being snatched from Jesus' hand? Remember that one? Here's another quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. His position is this verse has nothing to do with one's eternal state being destroyed. The weak brother being destroyed is not being sent to hell. In other words, he takes an opposite positioned in that of Adam Clark, quote, Some, who seem to be more jealous for the honor of certain doctrines than for the souls of men, innervate this terif terrific truth by asking how it bears upon the perseverance of the saints. Again, this is the Arminians. What Jameson Fawcett Brown is referring to, referring to Arminians who take the destruction, meaning the destruction in hell. The advocates of that doctrine... The perseverance of the saints, the Calvinists, thinking it necessary to explain away what is meant by destroying the work of God. Well, I don't think it's, you don't have to explain it away. It just means temporal destruction. It doesn't mean eternal destruction. And the Calvinists have to be concerned about the phrase where Paul says here in verse 15, destroying him for whom Christ died. Paul also mentions destroying the work of God five verses later in verse 20. Now, the opponents of that doctrine, that means that's the Arminians, are ready to ask, how could the apostle have used such language if he had believed that such a catastrophe was impossible? Well, it's very easy how he could use that such language, because he wasn't talking about ultimate destruction, he was talking about the destruction in this life. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown continue, the true answer to both lies in dismissing the question as impertinent. The apostle is enunciating a great and eternal principle in Christian ethics that the willful violation of conscience contains within 
in itself a seed of destruction, or to express it otherwise, that the total destruction of the work of God in the renewed soul, and consequently the loss of that soul for eternity, needs only the carrying out to its full effect such violation of the conscience. Whether such effects do take place, in point of fact, the apostle gives not the most distant hint here, and therefore that point must be settled elsewhere. Well, that's just a highfalutin way of saying Paul never meant to say that a weak brother could be destroyed in hell. Now, notice where you're not supposed to make your weak brother stumble. That is not the same thing as saying you can't discuss doubtful things with mature questions, Christians and come to different conclusions. And that's going to happen. But that's not, that has nothing to do with making your weak brother stumble. If you see that it's going to cause somebody to stumble, you don't argue with him. You just don't do it. But if you have a mature brother who's questioning, I wonder if it's all right to eat pork or not, and he wants to discuss it on a strong level, a mature level, well, then discuss it with him. You're not making him stumble. You're just helping him work through something. Romans 14, verse 16, Paul continues, Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. The NIV says, don't let what you consider good be slandered. The easiest way to take this is that Paul is talking to the strong Christian, and he says, strong Christian, you think it's okay to eat pork. You think it's okay to eat idle meat. You think it's okay to drink wine. Well, don't let your freedom to do that be slandered when you cause your evil brother your weak brother to stumble because then people are going to say, well, look what your freedom did. Yeah, pork, wine, idle meat, great. Now we've got a person that's left the faith, faith, faith. He's wandering around with a stricken conscience, miserable, out of fellowship because you, because you ate meat because of your freedom. And that way, freedom is slandered. Freedom to eat meat is slandered. Now that to me is the easiest way to take that verse. Jameson Fawcett Brown take it that way too that Paul is talking to the strong Christian and saying, be careful, strong Christian, don't let your freedom be slandered. However, it is also possible to take it this way. Therefore, weak brother, do not let your good, not eating pork, be slandered. In other words, don't go around and make people angry at you because you're wrecking their freedom. However, I think, as I said at the beginning of this audio, I think verses 13 through 23 are Paul exhorting strong Christians to take care of the weak Christians, not vice versa. So I don't think that's the proper way to take it. I think Paul is talking to strong Christians saying, don't let your freedom be slandered. Don't let your freedom, which is good, be slandered. Paul continues in verse 17, Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Major on the majors, Paul saying, don't major on the minors. In the Holy Spirit, the NIV Study Bible says, given by the Holy Spirit, righteousness, peace, and joy, given by the Holy Spirit. And I think usually means in the sphere of or under the jurisdiction of, if you will, where the Holy Spirit operates, you're going to have righteousness, peace, and joy. And you're not going to be fighting each other over what you eat. Here's a quote from Steve Atkinson. You may lose joy by abstaining from a freedom, but you will gain joy from walking in love for your weak brother. Here's a parallel verse in 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. That's Paul speaking to the Corinthians. We move now to Romans 14:18. Paul continues, Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. In which way to serve Christ? By giving up something you really want to do for the sake of a weak brother. That's how you serve Christ. You're not only acceptable to God, you're approved by men. You're promoting righteousness, peace, and joy. That makes God happy. But how about being approved by men? 
Now, you know, we're not supposed to be men pleasers. A lot of times we have to do things that are not approved by men. Paul the Apostle did that all the time. He ended up in jail a lot of times. Jesus did things that were not approved by men. He was stoned and spit at and, and blasphemed all the time during his ministry. So what does that mean? Well, because of common grace, sometimes men can appreciate good stuff. Non-Christian people can appreciate people who act honestly and uprightly and cheerfully and civilly because they're human beings made in the image of God, even though they're sinners. Here's a quote from John Gill. Uh, we should do things of, quote, approved of good men, of such, that, of such that can discern things that differ. He's talking about non-Christians who can discern things that are good and discern things that are bad. And approve those that are excellent. These people can approve the things that are excellent and even of bad men. For such who live honestly and uprightly, who cultivate peace and friendship among men and carry themselves cheerfully and civilly to all men. Gill calls them bad men because they're not saved, but sometimes you got what I call the righteous pagan or the or the good the good worldling. They're out there, and thank God for them. They're not good enough to get into heaven, but they're good enough to be decent citizens. Now, the things that you do that are good cannot but be approved of by the generality of these men. Here's some scriptures, Proverbs 3, 4. Then you will find favor and high regard in the sight of God and man if you behave properly. Luke 2:52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with the people. You know, I've read a lot of history, and when you come across the rare political leader or military leader who treats his the people under his command kindly and has decent personality, people love him. They just do. Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's the early Christians. They had favor with all the people. Not the Sanhedrin who tried to put them in jail, but the general run of the people who were listening to the preaching there, they were impressed. So the way you carry yourself and the way you treat your Christian brother will affect the way outsiders look at you. And if you treat them with kindness, there is no stronger evangelistic tool in the world than to do that. Romans 14:19 Paul continues So then we must pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another and complaining about a brother that's eating pork or drinking wine or eating idol meat that does not promote peace it promotes all kinds of strife it does not build up one another our purpose is to build up our Christian brother and make them strong because we are all weak and the purpose of the body is to make every other part of the body stronger than it was individually there should never be a church split over doubtful things. Now, doctrinal things are a different matter. Sometimes you do have to split over that, but not over doubtful things. Here's some scriptures. 1 Corinthians 10:24. No one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. 1 Corinthians 10:32. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. Don't offend people with doubtful things. Romans 14, verse 20. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Of course, God's work is referring to weak Christians. God, God has made those Greek, those weak Christians. They are the handiwork of God, if you will, and don't tear them down. They belong to God. Because of food, you're going to tear down God's handiwork? Everything is clean, but it is wrong for a man to call stumbling by what he eats. Now, when I say do not tear down God's work, and I said the work refers to the work, weak Christian, that's what the NIV Study Bible says. It also could be the work of God in the weak brother's life. Do not tear down God's work that he's doing in the weak brother's life because of food. Either way, it comes to the same thing. Everything is clean. This is a theological fact. 
Here's some scripture proving that, Titus 1.15. To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. To the pure, everything is pure, Titus 1.15. Romans 14.20. Everything is clean. Romans 14.14, which we've just read. I know and I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And, of course, we're talking about doubtful things, eating food and such. We're not talking about moral things like adultery, etc. Romans 14.21, it is a noble thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. Paul continues with his main theme here. Now, one might question, why would Paul, why would somebody, why would a weak Christian not want to drink wine? Why would drinking wine make anybody, anybody stumble back then? Everybody drank wine back then including the Jews, there was nothing in the Old Testament law that forbade, that forbade drinking wine. So that I, can, I don't know. Well, this is my speculation. I didn't read this in a commentary anyway. Maybe the people back then were weak like they are today. They say, well, you know, you drink wine, you drink too much of it, and you become drunk, so we're just going to put a hedge law around that and not drink any wine at all. If we don't drink any wine at all, we're never going to get drunk, and we'll live happily ever after in a moral, righteous way. That could be. Here's some scriptures that talk about drunkenness. Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, and whoever staggers because of them is not wise. Proverbs 23, 29 through 30, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has conflicts, who has complaints, who has wounds for no reason, who has red eyes, those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine. That's not a good thing. Drunkenness is bad. The Bible clearly condemns drunkenness, and, and it clearly allows drinking wine without drunkenness. But it could be back then some Jewish brothers or people in general, not just Jews, might thought that drinking wine is bad because it leads to drunkenness, just like people do today. Verse 22, Romans 14. Do you have a conviction? Keep it to yourself before God. The man who does not condemn himself by what he approves is blessed. Who is the you here? Do you have a conviction? It's probably the strong Christian. You have a conviction that it's okay to eat pork? Keep it to yourself. Don't go around telling the weak Christian that it's okay to eat pork. If it's going to make him stumble, go, to your, go into your private home and eat your pork, not in front of your weak Christian. Now, it could, this could logically perhaps refer to a weak Christian that Paul's talking to, do you have a conviction that it's wrong to eat pork? Keep it to yourself. And again, I think that's a good idea, although I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. Keep it before, keep it to yourself. Now, the last half of the verse, verse 22, the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves is blessed. So let's just take it on, on both premises. First, that the man who does not condemn himself is the strong Christian. How does he condemn himself by approving eating pork? He condemns himself by eating the pork in front of the weak brother and causing the weak brother to stumble, and therefore the man has not contributed to righteousness, peace, and joy, but he's caused his weak brother to stumble. Therefore, he's a bad, he's done a bad thing. So the strong Christian who does not condemn himself, hey, I don't condemn himself, I'm free to eat pork. <laughs> uh, he would condemn himself if he did that, but he does not condemn himself when uh, by not by not eating the pork in front of the weak brother. The man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. He approves of eating pork, but he does not condemn himself by eating the pork. And as a result, he's blessed. What if it's the weak brother that Paul is talking about here? The man who does, the weak brother who does not condemn himself by what he approves. This would mean a weak brother condemns himself because he approves of eating meat, even though it violates his conscience, perhaps because of peer pressure or for whatever reason. He doesn't want to be seen as... A stick in the mud, so he goes ahead and eats the pork, and he condemns himself. 
It could be, but I don't think that's the con. I th- again, I think the whole context of this is referring to strong Christians looking out for weak Christians. So I don't think that man that Paul is referring to there is the weak Christian. He's referring to the strong Christian who doesn't condemn himself because uh, by eating what he by carrying out what he approves the eating of meat. He doesn't condemn himself by eating it and thus causing the weak brother to stumble. We go to verse twenty-three of Romans fourteen. But who? But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats. Now, the first part of verse 23 would lend support to the argument that the man that Paul is talking about in verse 22 is the weak brother who condemns himself by eating pork when he knows it's wrong. He condemns himself by what he approves. He condemns himself because he approves of eating pork even though he knows it's wrong. And then in verse 23, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats. It does sort of fit the context, although I don't, I don't believe that's what Paul was saying, but it, it's, it's arguable. But at any rate, if, you, if you're faced a doubtful thing and you do it and you're not sure that it's a doubtful thing, well, then you condemn yourself, and that's sin. You don't want to condemn yourself. Whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from a conviction, and everything that is not from a conviction is sin. Like, I am absolutely convinced there's nothing wrong with mowing my grass on Sunday. Absolutely convinced of it. I'm trying to think of something else that I'm not so convinced of, but if I can think of it, if I'm not convinced of it, I better withhold from doing it until I am convinced of it, because as soon as you have a doubt, you're causing yourself to sin. And, of course, this is talking about doubtful things, not moral things, as I've said over and over again. Sometimes, you know, you just don't know whether something's sinful or not. You don't have all the information. You're just not sure. And situations like that I'm referring to, let's say that you have a brother that you're not sure whether you should say something about a sin or whether you should let it go. It's a minor thing, it's, you know, you're not, and you're not sure whether they're actually wrong or not, maybe. You know, life is full of difficult things like that, and it's doubtful. That's not the kind of doubtful thing I'm talking about. If you say, okay, well, I, I, I need to say something to this brother. I'm not exactly sure that I should. It's doubtful to me, but I think I better... It's a 75-25 or maybe a 60-40 proposition. That's not the sort of doubtful thing I'm talking about. That's not a sin. That's, that's living life as a human being. We, we often act on less than perfect information. I'm talking about something that's, that doesn't matter, like what you eat, what you're listening to, that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter unless it becomes immoral. In that case, that's a doubtful thing. If you're convinced that it's perfectly okay, well, then do it. It's not a sin. But if you're not convinced, don't do it because it's a sin. So let's summarize that verse. If it's doubtful, it's dirty. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Romans 14. We'll take up Romans 15 in our next audio. Chapter 15 contains some miscellaneous exhortations. Paul continues with the weak brother and strong brother division. Then he talks about the Jewish and Gentile division in the church. He's trying to exhort to unity. Then he talks about his plans to visit Rome. We'll take that up in the next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one. Hope you enjoyed this one too.